me please tonight to Luke chapter 14. Luke chapter 14. And reading from verse 16. Then he said to him, A certain man gave a great supper and invited many, and sent his servant at supper time to say to those who were invited, Come, for all things are now ready. But they all with one accord began to make excuses. The first said to him, I bought a piece of ground, and I must go and see it. I ask you to have me excused. Ridiculous, isn't it? Supper time, it's night time. How are you going to see your ground at night time? Another said, I bought five yoke of oxen, and I'm going to test them. I ask you to have me excused. Even more ridiculous. Still another said, I've married a wife, therefore I cannot come. The most hand-packed man in Scripture. <laughs> Easy to know who wore the trousers in that household. And so the servant came and reported these things to his master. And the master of the house, being angry, said to his servant, Go out quickly into the streets and lanes of the city, and bring in here the poor, the maimed, and the, the lame, and the blind. The servant said, Master, it is done as you have commanded, and still there is room. And the master said to the servant, Go out into the highways and hedges and compel them to come in, that my house may be filled. For I say to you that none of those men who were invited shall taste my supper. Excuses, excuses, excuses. That's the title tonight. This evening I want to do something very, very simple. I want to talk about some of the excuses that people make for not coming to Christ. Without going back into that parable, we, we have looked at that parable at length in the past, but just to show you the ridiculousness of the excuses that people made not to come to the supper when they had been invited. And so let me just give you a few tonight. There are many, but perhaps some of the most popular ones. The reason why I do this is because oftentimes in conversation with people and you're trying to witness to them and you're trying to point them to the Savior and they come up with the ridiculous excuses imaginable. And most of us were probably no better in our day. In fact, many of us probably used these same excuses. First of all, very common one, and if I could just put it into this sentence, why do I need to get saved? I'm as good as anyone else. Why do I need to get saved? I'm as good as anyone else. Now behind this excuse very obviously lies self-righteousness. A feeling of being good enough. Not perfect. Because nobody's going to say I'm perfect because that's prideful. But I'm good enough. I'm not the worst. Yes, I might be able to be something better, but I think that I'm good enough. I'm decent. I'm harmless. I'm honest. I'm honorable. And all the ways I conduct myself, 
Surely that is good enough. Surely God himself would not require any more from a human being than to just do their honest level best. If you do that, surely that's good enough. Irregardless of their shortcomings, irregardless of their failures and their occasional sins that they just might admit to, but still, in the overall picture, in the grand scheme of things, at the end of the day, when I stand before God, surely I'll be good enough. But the Bible says otherwise, does it not? Romans 3, there is none righteous, no, not one. Romans 3 and 20, for by the deeds of the law shall no flesh be justified. Romans 3, 23, for all have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. All have sinned and have fallen short of God's high standard of holiness and righteousness. <laughs> a little bit short or a long way short, it makes no difference. It's short. Short is short is short. And as far as God's concerned, one sin is enough to condemn us. That's how high His righteousness and His holy standard is. Who then can be saved? Anybody can be saved if they receive the Savior. But as soon as a man or a woman says, I'm good enough, what they're saying to God is, I don't need a Savior because I'm not that big of a sinner. <laughs> I know people who are, and they probably need a Savior, but not me because I'm not that bad. <laughs> a heart can so easily deceive itself, can't it? As soon as a man or woman says, I'm good enough, what they're saying is, Christ didn't need to die for me. Now, they won't actually say that, but that's what it's implying. I don't need the gospel. I don't need the cross. I don't need the Savior because I'm okay. I'll make it in there. There's others who's bad, really bad. They need that, but not me. Can you see how arrogant and prideful that is before God? Can you see how God would be angry with that? Do you remember in, in Luke 18? How that story in Luke 18 in verse 10 it says, two men went up to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee. He was very, very religious. The other was a tax collector, the most hated people in all Israel. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself. Notice he prayed with himself. Somebody says he certainly wasn't talking to God here. He was talking to himself. But it means he stood over by himself. That's what it really means. He prayed by himself. God, I thank you that I am not like other men extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this 
tax collector. I fast twice in a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. And the tax collector standing afar off would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. The person who thinks they're good enough is like the Pharisee. They measure themselves with everyone else around them. And guess who comes out the top? Themselves. And they thank God they're not like those people up in McGovery Prison tonight. They thank God they're not like those people who are alcoholics and drug addicts and prostitutes and all the rest of it. Because they think they're good enough. And so that's a very common excuse for not coming to Christ. I'm okay, thank you very much. And they might be decent, harmless, honorable in their dealings. They might be all of that. But as far as God's concerned, they're wearing filthy garments. And it's a stench in the nostrils of God. God hates pride. He hates it. And then another very common one, very prevalent today. As long as a person is sincere, as long as a person is sincere in what he believes, then he will be all right. Now, we're living in a, a pluralistic society. And we're living in a society of multi-faith. We're living in a society where few people believe that there's such thing as absolute truth. And so this becomes much more prevalent in the age that we live in. And so you hear many people saying, well look, as long as a person's sincere, as long as they really believe what they believe, surely that is enough. That's okay. But when a person says that, they're confusing sincerity with truth. And the trouble with sincerity is this, that it's very subjective. It can be subject to your opinion. It can be subject to how you feel, what you think. Whereas truth is a fact, regardless of what you think or how you feel or what your opinion is. Two and two is four, and you can think what you like, but it's still four. It's not going to change. It's truth. Spiritual truth, biblical truth, is not going to change because somebody's got a different opinion about it. And so, sincerity can be what a person perceives and you can have a sincere belief in something that has absolutely no basis in truth whatsoever. And you may live and die for it. But it's not truth. And not get a person to heaven. Now, one of the reasons why this statement is so prevalent today is this. 
There's so many religions. And anybody with any wit at all is going to say they can't all be right. Because there's such a diversity of belief. Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormons, Hare Krishnas, Buddhism, Islam, you get on and go on all night. They can't all be right. Because many of their beliefs is diametrically opposed to one another. So, everybody knows they can't all be right. So, the next best thing is to say, well, they don't have to be right. They just have to be sincere. It doesn't really matter what you believe as long as you really believe it. Especially when it comes to religion. And, and you hear that all the time. And people say, well, I'm, I'm a spiritual person. Well, what does that mean? Well, I don't really know, but I just believe something. But I'm very sincere in it. <laughs> but you can be sincere about something that has no basis in truth whatsoever. And it's not going to work. And you're not going to get to heaven. Proverbs 14 and 12 says, There is a way that seems right to a man, but in the end it is the way of death. When those people set sail from Southampton on the Titanic to go to America, every single one of them sincerely believed they were going to make it. And why shouldn't they? They were in the most modern ship of its day. It was the most powerful ship. It was the biggest ship. It was the most luxurious ship. It was the safest ship. It had everything going for it. Why shouldn't they get there? Not one had any doubt whatsoever. They were entirely sincere. The captain was sincere. Everybody was sincere until they slammed into the iceberg. And suddenly, all that sincerity, all of that belief, all of that trust evaporated. And most of them did not finish the journey. They did not get to the desired haven, did they? There's a way that seems right unto a man. But in the end, it is the way of death. A man may sincerely believe that his way will get him to heaven. But Jesus said, I am the way. A man may sincerely believe that what he believes will get him to heaven. But Jesus said, I am the truth. A man may sincerely think that how he lives will get him to heaven. But Jesus said, I am the way. And so, as long as a person is sincere in what he believes, he'll get to heaven. No, there's only one way. And Jesus made it abundantly clear in that statement. And there can be no argument. And there can't be two ways. Or else Jesus has lied. And then he would not be the son of God. But then here's another excuse. Now this is an excuse that a person would make. Who, who knows they're lost. And who has a sincere desire to come to Christ. They've maybe been to church a number of times. They've heard the gospel. People's been praying for them. They've read tracts. They've come to that place in life where they realize that they're not good enough. They've come to the place to realize that there's only one way, and that's through Jesus Christ. 
So far, so good. But then, here comes an excuse. I'll try to become better first. How many has done that? Maybe you've done that at the start. Maybe before you came to Christ, you thought, well, I know how a Christian should live, and there's things in my life that's not compatible the way I would expect a Christian to live, so I'll deal with those things first. I'll get rid of the habits. I'll get rid of this, this, and this. And whenever I clean myself up, then I'll come to Christ, and I'll get saved. But old habits die hard. And very often we cannot defeat them in our own strength. And God wants us to come to him as we are. Not to try to present ourselves better to him first. He knows us anyway. He knows all about us. Salvation is not reforming. It's not reformation. It's transformation. It's regeneration. It's not a case of reforming and reforming and reforming and reforming and then when we're good enough and we have stopped all that stuff that we used to do, then we'll come to Christ and then he'll accept us. No. That's not how it works. If any man is in Christ, he is what? A new creature. All things pass away. Behold, all things become new. The supernatural power of God that saves us can keep us saved. If God's Holy Spirit is strong enough to woo us and win us to Christ, surely he can keep us after we come to Christ. And surely he can clean us up. And surely he can change our lives. And he can and he does. My late brother-in-law was an alcoholic. He was so bad that his brain cells were being destroyed by alcohol poisoning he was literally on his deathbed. He was dying. And a relative led him to Christ. And he says from that second, the desire for drink that he had from he was 16 years old left him instantly. But you know what? He said the strange thing was, he says the old cigarettes... He says, it took a whole year before the desire for that left. He says, I had to fight that one. But he was a new creature in Christ. He was gloriously saved, went on to be a pastor of a church for many years, preaching churches all over this country. But if he had tried to clean himself up first, he never would have made it, would he? He never would have made it. And then, here's another one. You may hear people say this. I could never be a Christian in my business. Pastor, you know what? In my line of work, you have no idea what it takes in this dog-eat-dog world that we're living in. You know how rough it is out there just to make a living. And i got to take some shortcuts and cut some corners and do some things that, well, a bit iffy, but everybody's doing it. So I really don't think that I could be a Christian in my business. Well, there's three ways we can look at that. First of all, in Philippians 4.22, Paul says, about those saints in Caesar's household. 
Caesar was a wicked, evil, brute of a tyrant. And yet, in his very household, there was Christians there. Christian slaves, actually. Right under his very nose. And if they could be Christians in Caesar's household, how much more can we today? What about Daniel in Babylon? And the three Hebrew boys? In that great pagan city? This was the world's superpower. This was their city. This was the greatest and the biggest and the most glorious city on earth. But it was a city that was full of perversion. It was a city that gave license to everything you could possibly imagine and more. And here are these four young, young godly men, just young men, teenagers, in the mid, dumped in the midst of this with all of the distractions and the temptations and the pull of the world and how Babylon tried to change them. They even changed their very names and tried to re-educate them and do everything with them. But in spite of all of that, they remained true, didn't they? They did not compromise. They would not and did not give in. Joseph in Egypt, in spite of... All that happened to him in spite of Potiphar's wife throwing herself at his feet. He didn't yield, did he? So to say I could never be a Christian in my business, you see, it's not really true. Zig Ziglar. William knows Zig Ziglar. Zig Ziglar was unquestionably the top salesman in all of America. He broke all records for seals. And whenever he got to the very top of his profession, he had a wonderful transformation. He met Christ. And he got wonderfully saved. Now, several years ago, I can't remember where William was with me at the time, but there was a time in Northern Ireland when the Almway Foundation, which is an American foundation for selling goods and stuff, was trying to make big inroads into Northern Ireland. And some friend, I don't know who it was, somebody invited me to go along and to hear Zig Ziglar give a, Zig Ziglar give a talk. Now, I didn't know anything about the man. It's the first time I even heard his name. But you'll never forget that name, Zig Ziglar. I mean, that's a strange name, isn't it? And so I reluctantly went along, and I thought, this is going to be boring. This man's going to give a pep talk, a rally, to all these Amway wannabes, I'm going to sit there for an hour and a half, I'm going to be bored out of my skull, but I'm going to go because this friend invited me. Boy, I'm glad I went. So he came on the stage. Now, there probably was a couple of hundred people there, and I know what they were wanting. They were wanting a whole rah, rah, rah thing. I mean, they were just pumped, waiting for this man, the top world salesman, to come on the scene and, you know, get them going for sales. Do you know, he did everything but preach a sermon. He almost preached a sermon. He talked about tithing. He talked to give his testimony. And, and, and I could sense that a lot of them there was probably sitting thinking, oh dear, he's preaching at us. He didn't care. But I remember this. Here's what he said. He says, when I became a Christian, he says, some of my friends in the business, because he did lectures and he did conferences and talks to Fortune 500 business people and all this, here's what they told me. They said, 
Now that you're a Christian and you can't swear anymore at your seminars and you can't tell off-color jokes anymore in your seminars because he did a lot of that and the people loved it. Now that you can't do that, people will drop you like a hot potato. Your business will be finished. He says, well, if that's the case, so be it. But I'm going to honor Christ. And do you know what he said? He says, my business was never better after that. He says, it took, he says I end up, he says, at so many invitations, I had to turn people down. Sales, as anybody knows, anybody's in sales. That's a cutthroat business. That's a driven cutthroat business. Believe it or not, I used to sell life assurance. I had no idea what I was selling. Hadn't got a clue. Dear help the people that bought of me. They knew as much about it as I did, but I bluffed my way and I wasn't saved at the time. Glad I better put that in. <laughs> Quickly. But you had to sell. You had to get your commission. But the trouble was, there wasn't much honor with it. So, Saints and Caesar's household. But here's the second thing. If you can't be a Christian in your business, you have no business being in that business. <laughs> Get out of it. If you can't live for Christ and honor Christ in that business, get out of it. You say, it'll cost me something. Yes. But the rewards will be far greater. Say, David, it's easy for you to say that. There's people I meet, and I don't think they would ever get out of their business. Well, you've got a choice in life. If it's a dishonorable business... And if you cannot do it with honor, get out of it. Second Chronicles chapter 25 is the story of a king called Amaziah. And Amaziah, he was just a young man. He was only 25 years old when he took the throne. And it says about him in verse 2, He did that which was right in the sight of the Lord. Very few kings of Judah did that. There's only about four of them. None of the kings of Israel did it. But he did that was right in the sight of the Lord, but not with a loyal heart. Not with a perfect heart. Now I had a problem. He had a battle to fight. The Edomites. Ancient enemy. And so he began to number all the young men 20 years and over that he could go to war with. They found out he had 300,000. He didn't think that was enough. And so, he came up with a plan. He went to Israel. Now this was a divided kingdom at this time. There was ten tribes called Israel in the north. Two tribes in the south called Judah. Because Judah would have been the biggest of the two. Sometimes Israel is called Ephraim in the Bible. Because that was the biggest tribe of the ten. But it was totally divided. The nation. And at this time, Israel and Judah were not good neighbors. But he went to Israel and he said to the king, I'll give you a hundred talents of silver if you give me 100,000 of your men if I can borrow them for this fight against the common enemy, the Edomites. And so a deal was struck. 
So now he has 400,000 men. 100 of those were mercenaries. 100,000 were mercenaries that he's just paid 100 talents of silver, which was a lot of money in those days. All so far so good, you may think. But God was displeased. And God sends a prophet to him. And the prophet says, don't do it. And if you do do it, you better be good, because God's going to be against you in this battle. When God's against you, you're not going to win a battle, are you? So he thought about it and said, okay. The prophet said, see that 100,000? Get them back again. Don't take them. 300,000, God's enough with God. That 100,000, don't take them. He said, okay. But then he said, but what am I going to do about the hundred talents of silver? They're not going to give me that back. And they didn't. In fact, if you read the whole story, they were very, very, very angry. But, verse 9, 2 Chronicles 25. Let me just read this. Then Amaziah said to the man of God, But what shall we do about the 100 talents which I have given to the troops of Israel? And the man of God answered, The Lord is able to give you much more than this. Now, I'm not trying to be pedantic about this, but notice he didn't say the Lord is able to give you much more of this. And he was. The Lord is able to give you much more than this. And if somebody has to make a sacrifice to live a true Christian life, even in their business or their job or their career, and it seems like they're going to lose financially, economically, or whatever, they may lose that. But God is able to give them much more than that. God gave him a great victory. A mighty victory against the Edomites. And so anyone who comes to Christ, if it's going to cost them something, maybe dear to them, God is able to give them much more than that. God can make that up. Now, of course, he can bless them financially anyway. He can give them another business or change it or honor them some other way. But he can give them much more than that. And that's a good lesson for us to learn even too as believers. If there's something that we've got to give up and we're hesitant and say, well, that's going to cost me if I give this up. God is able to give you much more than that. He really is. But it's a step of faith to do it, isn't it? So, He is able to give you much more. Now, here's another one. Just two more. We'll go quickly. What will my friends think? Now that's one that you hear all the time, isn't it? Even if they don't say it, you know that's what they're thinking. The reason why we know that is because that's what we thought. Is there one of us that was at an age of understanding and knew that whenever we're coming to Christ, before that we were thinking, I wonder what my friends will think. Or I wonder what my family will think. Or I wonder what my workmates will say. And I wonder what my school friends will think. Now young people, but not exclusively, but young people are especially prone to peer pressure, aren't they? Because nobody wants to stand out like a speckled bird. 
and we seek others' approval. And if we have to compromise to get their approval, we'll compromise, but it doesn't always get the approval, but even compromising. Now, in John chapter 12, in verse 42, listen to what it says here. Nevertheless, even among the rulers, many believed in him. But because of the Pharisees, they did not confess him, lest they should be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the praise of men more than the praise of God. So it's not just young people. Anybody can be prone to this. What will my friends think? What will my peers think of this? What will my superiors think of this? I remember whenever I gave my heart to the Lord and uh, I was working night shift uh, uh, that night actually it was I remember thinking when I was going in I wonder what these boys is going to think because it was all men I worked with. I told you before I didn't have to wait very long because within five minutes I had to fess up. <laughs> I had to lay and on the line, had to nail my colors to the mast. And I'm glad that I did. I'm glad I didn't waffle. And then after that, the first person I went to was a believer. But I had to confess with my mouth what I believed in my heart. And own Jesus as my Lord and Savior. And I felt that within five minutes, the whole factory knew I was, God, he was a holy roller. <laughs> and boy, did I get called some nicknames and all the rest of it. Did I ever get some stick? Did I ever get some slagging? I had people lining up waiting for me to come in at the shift to start on me. That's how bad it was and how good it was. But you know, by the time I left that job, some of the people that gave me the hardest time came to me and said, you know, you truly believe what you believe and you lived it. And no matter how much stick we gave you, you never turned away from it. And that was the grace of God. So here are these rulers who believed in him, but they wouldn't confess him. Now in Matthew chapter 10, it says something about that. And this is a scary one. Matthew 10, verse 32, 33. Therefore, whoever confesses me before men, him I will also confess before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, him I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. Ah. At some point, every born-again believer that's truly born again is going to have to own up and is going to have to say, I'm a follower of Jesus. <laughs> and let me tell you, you better do it sooner than later. You know, I worked with a guy for 14 years, I think it was. 
And just before I left, he said to me, I'm a believer too. Really? I hadn't known. You'd never ever said. And he belonged to a, a kind of a, a sect who, who claimed Christ and the general things that we believe, but they're very insular and isolated and keep themselves to themselves and never share their faith, never talk about it. I was shocked. Now, he was a decent fellow. He was a nice fellow. He was easygoing. He's all of those things. But nobody in that place knew he was a believer. He didn't confess it before men. Now, I would worry about that man in the light of that scripture I have just read. Because he had ample opportunity to confess him. What will my friends think? In Matthew 7, verses 13 and 14, Jesus describes two ways, doesn't he? He describes the broad way and the narrow way. And the broad way, he says, there are as many on the broad way, but few find the narrow way. Few find it. Listen, here's a newsflash. If you're going to be a Christian, you're going to be in the minority. In your workplace, probably in your office, in your classroom. You're going to be in the minority. And you've got to be prepared for that. And there's stuff that goes along with being in the minority, isn't it? But you see, we don't want to appear odd or strange or unusual or different. We want to blend in with the background. But Christ won't have that. He just won't have that. We've got to take a stand. We're on the narrow way. It's a straight gate. It's a narrow gate that leads to life, the Bible says. Few there be that finds it comparative to the population of the world. So what will my friends think? Well, what will Christ think? The reason why we love the salmon is because it swims against the flow. Fish go with the flow. It goes against the flow. And that's why it's so special among all of the fish, isn't it? That's why we're amazed at that salmon trying to go upstream to lay its eggs. It'll go over cascades and rocks and try to miss bears along the way and everything. And it goes against the flow. And as a believer, you and I are always going to be going against the flow of this world. And if we don't like that, I'm sorry... We're never going to last as a Christian. And then finally, there's many, but i just give you one more. The church has too many hypocrites. Now, almost every believer I know, somebody has said that to them at some point. You say, yes, I agree, one is too many, but it didn't stop me. Don't let it stop you. There's always been tares among the wheat. There'll always be those who profess that do not possess. It's the way it's going to be till the Lord comes. It's just the way that it is. Did you see the report recently about the fake one-pound coins? What is it? Six out of every ten one-pound coins is fake. But would that stop anybody going out and spending tomorrow? I don't think so. That's not going to stop people going into Marks and Spencers and handing the five of them over. 
See, it's nonsense, isn't it? I often say, if you get a plumber in to do a job for you and he botches it up, well, you say, well, that's too bad. I'll never believe in plumbers ever again. I'm never, ever going to get a plumber again. It's just ridiculous, isn't it? You get a good plumber. Because they're not all bad, are they? Remember one time, and maybe said this in the cell group, remember one time, Sally and I, we weren't long married, moved under the house and you know when you move in and you're not long married, you're keen to decorate, and boy, that's been knocked out of me, I'm telling you. <laughs> that sin is gone. <laughs> but you're keen to decorate, you know, and, and of course I'd never decorated in my life, I had no idea. So we decided we would wallpaper the hall. And we made a couple of major mistakes. One of them was we bought the worst possible paper the thickest, it was hessian. I mean, to start off with that, I mean, that's a, that's a big job for any good wallpaper. And here's me, a total novice. Second mistake was I didn't ask anybody about it, how to do it. I just thought, well, I, I know how to do this. This is easy. So here's what I did. Got the table out, the paste, pasted that. Went to the first corner and stuck the wallpaper right down that corner. Then put the next one on, and the next one, I got to about the fourth or fifth, it was that shape. What's wrong with this? I didn't use a plumb line. I trusted that that wall was straight. It looked straight. I mean, who would build a crooked wall? And then I discovered every wall's crooked in every house. <laughs> That's why you use a plumb line. That's how green I was. That was my last attempt at wallpapering ever. That was it. Finished. Finito. Never ever even attempted it again. That was enough for me. Now, I paint it. I'd have painted it to the cows come home. Wouldn't do it now, but I did it then. But no more wallpapering. That was it finished. There's only one plumb line. And that's Christ. So you tell your friend, hey listen, you're right. There are people who profess things about Christ but they don't live the life. But don't look to them, look to Christ. He's the perfect one. And anyway, they didn't die for you, he died for you. He's the perfect standard. Look to him. Measure life up with him, not with other people. But it's only an excuse, isn't it? Who's getting a text message? Hope it's not me. <laughs> Bad job if it was me, wouldn't it? Eh? <laughs> so you, Caitlin? No? Okay. Every building, there's a cornerstone. And if it's made right and done right, the building will be right. Christ is our cornerstone. So there are many, many, many excuses. But they're only excuses. Remember what I told you before? The definition of an excuse. Anybody remember what it was? Because I'd just forgotten. 
<laughs> it was in my head one second ago. <laughs> I remember it now. <laughs> I remember it now. <laughs> Confession's good for the soul, isn't it? Say so I should have said, well, I'll think about it next week and then tell me. But <laughs> An excuse is the skin of a reason stuffed with a lie. Isn't it? Skin of a reason stuffed with a lie. It's more lie than reason, isn't it? Now you can sleep in your bed tonight. You know what that is. <laughs> I can sleep in my bed tonight too, for I know what it is. <laughs> All right. The Lord bless you. Now. <laughs>